I am Lucas Mack, and I'm on a mission to see the hurting get healed and the healed go out and heal others in order for all of us to experience the true love and light we desire. This podcast is me sharing my journey with you so you don't feel alone in your journey. Welcome to the Golden Rule Revolution. Hello, brothers and sisters, and welcome back to another episode of the Golden Rule Revolution. I am Lucas Mack, and thank you for joining and get ready for a really fun episode. I've, as as you've seen, I've had the pleasure of meeting an array of amazing and incredible people. And today is one of the people that tops, I think, the list. I had such a great time talking to Matt Kubler. His story is so powerful. And he's an author. He is a police officer. He is a veteran military intelligence in the army. He is a current police officer in Philadelphia. Um, He is a really beautiful soul. He's a critical thinker. And I just loved talking to him. And I know you're going to love talking or hearing our conversation. And Matt, thank you for coming on. You're a blessing in my life, brother. And I'm excited for everyone to hear this episode, man. Thank you for coming on. Did I, you know, I, after our first meeting and, and you know, Aaron Scott, he's our mutual friend and yes, he's one of us. Like yes, he he's a truth seeker. He's somebody that, that literally is just searching for answers to everything. And if there's ever a word that described me, I'm always just as you know, I'm in, a, in intelligence and, and a cop for 32 years. Mm-hmm. Like I'm always searching for answers every day is a, is a search for answers. And when I, when we met, I was like, man, this dude is righteous. I like him. And then I had you on my show. And then that was, we, what was it, an hour and 20 hour, 30 minute podcast, but we did 30 minutes before and an hour after, like it was all, it was a day. It was awesome. I was like, and, uh, that was amazing. Yeah, three hours. And my wife, I guess had been texting me because <laughs> She's like, are you ever coming down? Like for my little cave here. And I finally came down. She goes, was that one podcast? I'm like, well, yes, but no. Like yeah. it was a three hour conversation with an hour and a half recorded. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. it was awesome. Dude. Yeah, I had so much fun. And you know, this concept of truth and seeking truth is is so fun because I've gone, I've gone down routes I had I never thought ever in a million years that I, even when I was a journalist and TV and I had heard of nine 11 truthers and like, and I was like dismissive of that stuff, even though there was other things like on the religious side that I knew there are conspiracies. I understand the plotting of that side, but I was like, right. And then the more I have this book, uh, it's like a thousand page book. And the guy breaks basically every anomaly down from uh from a jet disappearing and over the atlantic to all the things and that's what opened my mind like wait a minute how do we know anything oh we hear it from someone else be it the newsman or our friend and we accept it as truth and it starts to shape our worldview until information comes that we see firsthand like this is 
wait a minute. Yeah. So anyway, it's just been fun, brother. Well, I mean, real quick, I'm not sure what the, the and like, and I love your show because you're like, this is what we're going to talk about. None of that. It's like, <laughs> hey, record. <laughs> Fuck it. Let's go. Here we are. Let's, yeah, exactly. And I love that because mine is exactly the same way. And yeah. I had two kids that I, one guy that I mentored, uh, former pro football player, and then another kid that's younger than him, 11 years younger than him, that I've had influence on. And they're both, one's 25, one's 36, maybe, or 34. Both Division One football players, partners in a financial firm. I had them on my show yesterday, and um, just the they're like, so you know, I know that you've you've grown as a podcaster over the years, and and you've increased your your understanding of how to. I said, listen, I'm not gonna lie to you, my ability to talk to a camera has increased great, or talking to another person has been great, but the fucking show's the show. Like it yeah. hasn't changed. I still ask one question and figure the fuck out as I go. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But for 9-11, people that, that don't know me in your audience, I was a, an, an air marshal, um, a United States Federal Air Marshal after 9-11. So that was a program that prior to 9-11, there was 33 sky marshals, they were called. And they flew um, basically from the East Coast or the West Coast internationally. There was no domestic flights where there was a sky marshal, which is essentially an armed law enforcement officer mm -hmm. on a flight. So after 9-11, President Bush decides he's going to create the, the air marshal program that was the sky marshal program and turn it into a, a larger function. And 9-12, I, I applied for the job and they hired around 4,000 out of about a million. I was one of those 4,000. Wow. And the reason why 9-11 hits home to me is I was so angry hmm. when I woke up that morning I mean, I just done. A, I was on a SWAT team, and that morning we had done a, a drug search warrant, and I had just gotten to bed, maybe an hour or two before the first plane hit. Long story short, I didn't really get any sleep that day because I kept my phone kept blowing up my house phone. This is when, you know, I had a cell phone, but I, you know, it was a Nokia, it was like this big, <laughs> and uh, um, and everything was pagers. My pagers going off, and when you're on SWAT, you're on call all the time. So I'm like, well, Jesus Christ! And so you have to look at everything. So you never really get the rest. But what I realized when I became an air marshal is that every one of us that took up that oath to fight terrorism did it believing that what we were doing is based on the truth. Mm. That what happened on 9-11 was exactly as it was told. And that our mission was to stop it from happening again. And I'm like you, I didn't believe any of that nonsense about inside job or any of that stuff that was coming out yeah. because I was a red, white, and blue bleeder, man. I did not yeah. care. I was fighting for my country and I would die for it. And I still am to this day, but I have a little bit more of an understanding of, of the motivators. And the country that you're actually fighting for. Versus, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who's, who's running that country. Right. And, and what I realized was, is that after a while, what was, and, and, and as the bureaucracy around the air marshals grew, the clearer the intentions became of what they were truly doing with us. And if that's truly what they were doing with us, then why was, why was it being done that way? If the fact is we aren't stopping terrorism, right? right. And right. what it became was very clear to me was that the big bureaucracy of government needed to have, and I call this the Macy storefront window mannequins that every day would change. They would put a new mannequin up there with a new style of clothing that they wanted to attract people in to buy and make them feel like they were safe and happy and whatever the, the emotion you're trying to trigger. 
And it became like we were the, the, the window dressing for the flight industry. Mm. Right? We needed to regain the trust of the flying public. And we needed to do that to make them feel like that it's okay and safe to do so. When there really wasn't a threat to begin with, right. a, a real threat that, that would quantify the response. And I had the same questions with COVID and a lot of other things, but right. we would be marched down in front of the entire passenger sitting in the, you know, in the, in the waiting area at their jet, at their gate. And we would walk down, go to the boarding where they collect your ticket, wheeling our, you know, suitcases down five minutes before flight crew already went down. Who are these two guys? People, you know, it's like, if I'm a terrorist, I'm not getting on that flight. Cause I just know two guys that don't look like us yeah. that are dressed like agents, but trying to act like they're not agents right. got just walked down this, the jetway five minutes before us and already sitting in their seat when we come on. Like, it's not rocket science. Right. I had my moms come up to me and squeeze my arm, say, thank you for what you're doing. God bless. You know, like 90 year old women. So right. we weren't there to stop terrorism or to, to have a midair gun battle. Mm. Right? right. We were there to make people feel safe. And I'm okay. I, I did it. You know, I was okay. But that, if that's what the person flying needed, I was okay to be that. But it made me really understand the, the over global picture of what actually happened. Because if, if people came to America, got flight training lessons, took a bunch of box cutters, got on three different airplanes, hijacked those planes, flew two and well, four airplanes, flew two in the World Trade Center, one in the Pentagon, and one crashed in the middle of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Right. If all of that happened the way they're saying it happened, then my ass should have been as covert as covert is. Yep. And they would have never known I was on that plane because our training said that's how good we were. Hmm. Like we were the baddest motherfuckers on the planet when it came to shooting. I, I could shoot at 37,000 feet with confidence knowing I was going to put one in your coconut and not into the electrical system of the airplane. Hmm. Like I was pretty good with that. Yeah. But what it became was a, was a window dressing. Hmm. And that's a microcosm of how our government operates. Yeah. It's a psychological, you know, I always wondered the Bible says the battle take take every thought captive. That's the verse. Take every thought captive. And I've always, you know, when you're in a psychological warfare, you're the recipient of psychological operations as Christianity is essentially you keep, you create sheep and you tell the sheep, if you go outside of this wall, you are bad sheep. You're mm -hmm. a bad person. That's a psychological, psychological operation. Although the text that we purport is truth says, take every thought captive. Why? Because if they can control our thoughts, our thoughts dictate our behavior, dictate everything from there. So this grand psychological operation that's been taking place on the planet forever finally is there's some glitches in the matrix. It's like that cat went by twice. You're like, wait a minute. Yeah. What, what just happened? And people are having, um, my brother's talked about a lot, like deja vu has been increasing. Um, people are deja vu. It's like out of like off the charts for some people or the ringing in their ears has been going off and you know, people start finding out like what's going on. And that's the, the, frequency the planet's actually raising and all these things are changing i'm chewing gum because i have such bad gerd hmm. i've had gerd for about i don't know a year and a half like crazy like clear my throat every two seconds kind of gerd 
all these things. Yeah, all these that's one of the that's one of the symptoms they're saying of the ascension. Yes. It's so fascinating. And it's it it wasn't until something happened to us that we're like, wait a minute, this is this anomaly or this yeah, if I feel safe, what is this concept of safety anyway? I don't even understand. Like we just went through a windstorm that was the worst that this area had ever seen. Bows were we we live with a lot of trees around us, and I was I mean, barely slept like is a tree going to hit our house because our na- tree fell on our neighbor's house last year and, and crushed a whole bedroom and and we had boughs banging on our our um house all night long and i thought this could happen at any time what is safety i was laying in bed like what makes me feel safe <laughs> The absence of fear. That's it. It's like that there's nothing in your life that makes you feel afraid at that moment. It's this unwritten safety rule. Yeah. Right? It's like it's it's subconsciously going, oh, everything's at peace around me. When it could be all fucking chaos everywhere. Yes. You just don't have, you're not feeling it yet. Exactly right. And then and people say, why, well, you know, that's where the ignorance is bliss. And like, is it bliss? It's I don't know. Like what, what is true bliss is knowing that you saw and you overcame like, that's like, that to me is bliss, but this pseudo bliss of like, well, if I just don't see, it doesn't exist type thing. It's like, well, you're not living. You're not free. You're not, I think like I live in Seattle. This is a pioneer town, gold rush savages, like coming across two, the Rocky mountains, the cascade mountains to get here. There's a tough people to this point. Now we're, we're like the movie. Um, set, I, what's the movie that Disney Pixar came out with with the robot and all the humans are fat. Yeah, I robot. Yeah. Is it I robot or something. Yeah. It's like, well, no, I robot was Will Smith or something. I know the movie you're talking you know about. What I'm talking about. Little, yeah. Little, yeah. 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 It's like, that's where they want to take us. Um, and we're waking up from that, but that's fascinating that you were air marshal. So let's back up. Let's go to your story now. Cause I think uh, I've reflected a lot about our conversation and just your life. And first of all, I just loved our time. I love the box. Yeah. I was just like, I got out of there. Like I felt like I was in a time warp. <laughs> I was like, man, that was so cool. Um, but share where you grow up and in, in your life up to this point, brother. Well, first of all, thanks again, man. I, anytime I get a chance to to just share life with somebody, um, even though we're not physically in the same place, we're connected through this amazing technology. And I know that our brains and hearts are in the same spot and we can feel each other through the screen. Yeah. Um, for me, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be 50 in two months and uh, I'm, I'm excited about that because I never fucking thought I'd be 50. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I never, really never thought I'd get here. Um we've talked about my dream that I died at 53. I've had my whole life and, you know, I loved your perspective on that. But for me, you know, growing up on the East coast, um, in a suburb, uh, in a little city outside of Philadelphia called Pottstown. Um, and my dad and mom got divorced when I was nine months old. Wow. And, you know, my biological father, where I haven't seen since I was 25. Um, and I wrote about this extensively in my book, Do a little plug here. Yes. Uh, a brother's love a memoir is uh the book i wrote 14 years ago about my brother and i my brother andy but anyways um you know growing up in a single family single parent family especially when the mom is the 
the, the, the workhorse, the, the provider, the, the leader of the family, it's different, you know, having two boys and a single mom in the 1970s, early seventies is just a different way of growing up than, than maybe others had. Mm. And my influence was a woman. So I'm an emotional guy. I have, I'm very connected emotionally because of my mom. My mom loves harder than any human being on the planet. Mm. And it's, she can make, <laughs> she's got this superpower. I tell her all the time, all she has to do is look you in the eye and touch your, any part of your body, your hand, your thigh, and she can make anybody cry. Wow. Like, like emotionally just go to some place in their heart where like emotion just come out. I'm like, I don't know how you do that. You're goddamn. <laughs> That's cool. But, and people like, don't look her in the eye. Don't look her in the eye. Like, <laughs> so, um, but growing up, you know, my brother was, my brother, Andy was older. He's almost three years older and he was autistic by today's standard. Back then he was just considered mentally retarded, mm. um, had a severe stutter so much so that his eyes would roll into his head, his face would contort. And it was every word. It wasn't, like he got hung up on P's or T's or S's. Mm. It was just formulating any, any sentence. So I had to learn to grow up a little bit quicker than, than most kids because my older brother wasn't necessarily the older brother. Mm. On top of the fact we were poor as shit and lived in, ha- in low-income housing and my mom worked three jobs, so we were alone a lot. Um, back then it wasn't uncommon to have a, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old alone. Yeah. And you know, we had babysitters, Daryl Hall, Hall & Oates, Really? His mom was his mom was my babysitter um, for till I was about six. Um, wow, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> he's from uh, he's from Pottstown, so cool. he's a hometown hero. But his mom, yeah, was was my babysitter. That's my claim to fame for him. Wow! But so I had this like tribe of people that raised me, and to this day, you know, that's say forty seven years ago when I started remembering things, and one of them, you know, was a, a lesbian hippie who taught me how to play leaving on a jet plane on an acoustic guitar. Wow. We had next door neighbors in the one project we lived in. It was like the, the modern day Jack Tripper and, uh, you know, three's company. Right. So that's and, awesome. And I think there was some weird sex shit happening there, but lots of weed. Um, and we would go there after school and there'd be the bong on the table and the penthouse and the playboys laying out. It was just, a, but they protected us. So I got involved. I got around a lot of different types of people. We had a lady next door to us on the other side was this black older woman who made liver and onions. And to this day, I'll never eat liver and onions, but she would (laughs) force us to eat liver and onions because my mom was at work and she would tell my mom she'd make us dinner. So like all these like weird people, weird meaning like obscure. That are in your life at certain periods of your life that at the time you don't really recognize their value. But over time, especially when you go out and go and write your life story over again, you get to relive your life. And all of a sudden, these faces and names start to pop back up. And you're like, holy shit, that's where I learned that. Or I remember that. And that's why I do this. And it's just amazing to relive your life a second time. If you ever get a chance to do that, please do. Um, yeah, I was a uh, very intelligent young man. I was five foot four in ninth grade. I'm six foot three, 250 now. Um, so I was this short little spark plug my whole life. And I, I got picked on for being short and smart and on top of having to protect my brother who was getting picked on every day and getting into fights. And, um, but then I sprouted up and never actually got any athletic ability. I I played baseball and basketball, but it was never any really excelled at it because I never really tried. And I, I, I learned after reliving my life, writing the book that I was a smoke and mirrors kid. Hmm. that my entire life was built around how do I 
find the easiest path to success and make it look like I knew what I was doing. Mm. Um, I got away with being smart enough to know how to manipulate the system to my advantage. I didn't have to, I never took a book home ever in high school, not once, never studied for a single thing. Mm. I would take the period before every test, study during that class, could still listen to what the teacher was saying. I could multitask. I have um, pretty good photographic memory. And I would go and I would take that test, dump all the information I just memorized and have no knowledge. Like I didn't retain anything. Right. I just learned the system. And, and then I realized that I was, you know, I hated being broke. So I started working um, from eighth grade on. I worked 40 hours a week um, every, every year of my life since eighth grade. And because I like to have the financial ability to do things. And I didn't want to have, you know, I wore hand-me-downs. We, we got stuff from the Goodwill. Mm. You know, it was never any new clothes. Nothing was ever in style. And, you know, yeah. my mom bought my sneakers at, at the grocery store in the bin. You know, they looked like Chuck Taylors, but they weren't Chuck Taylors. You know, they were Bobos. Right. And, uh, but my mom worked her ass off just to get us that. And I always recognized that. I always recognized that my mom was our leader and that she was the, the most loving, caring, hardworking person. And she was my example. Mm. And I always knew that. Didn't always follow it, but I always knew that. Um, she got remarried to my stepdad, um, who became a pastor. Wow. He was, talk about, talk about a, getting sold a different bag of goods. My stepdad was a drummer in a rock band. Wow. And they had not like, a pretty well-known rock band in the, in the eighties, early eighties, late seventies, early eighties in, in the Philadelphia area. And I thought my mom was marrying a rock star. Wow. Didn't that son of a bitch get a calling? <laughs> right? I always bust his balls. I'm like, what's it like in a shower? Like when did God come to you? Yeah, that's good. And how did that happen? Let's, let's discuss that. Right. I, mean, I was really digging the drummer guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then he took a hard 180. Oh, that's went a whole different route. Right. Awesome. So, and that was different because, you know, I was having my dad, my biological father was pretty much non-existent. So, and every young boy needs a, needs a dad, needs a male person in their life. That is, you know, a strong example. Yeah. And I didn't have that. And my stepdad tried to be that, but I was still hung up on, you know, I, I wanted my dad to be that guy. Right. Yeah. I, I needed that. And I didn't want him to be that guy because that meant my dad couldn't be that guy. Yeah. Yeah. And I waited 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 and it never came. Mm. And that caused me to have a lot of stress, um, emotional stress. I had my first bleeding ulcer when I was 15 mm. um, from taking aspirin for migraines every day. They threw the, the wall of my duodenal. And then I had another one when I was 16, um, nearly died from the one, my white blood. cell. I think it's the white was at six. Um, which is super low apparently, but I, I, I learned that I was a warrior in life, that I was able to always solve problems, even if I cheated through it or I backdoored it or did the end around or whatever, Mm -hmm. I always found a solution, but I didn't always work hard at that solution. So, but working and that as a play on words, when I went to work at my job, I worked hard because to me, there was a reward for that. If I worked hard, I'd get a raise. If I get a raise, I made more money. If I made more money, I had more independence. Like I saw the path for that, but going to school was just simply a process. Like, all right, I have to be here. Right. Might as well get your grades because then nobody bothers me. 
Um, and it was easy. Like it, it didn't, I didn't have a struggle with it. So, but then there was like this, <laughs> yeah, I've been a cop for 28 years. Mm. I've been serving for 32, if you include four years in the army. There was a part, there was a moment in time where I actually thought I, I was going to be a criminal, like a lifelong criminal. Like I just, there was something about that world that I was always fascinated by. Mm. So I started my own uh, hall pass forgery business mm-hmm. in high school. I learned how to forge signatures because I used to forge my mom's and stuff mm. all the time. And I just really learned how to, like, again, the photographic memory. I could remember a signature and just practice all day until I got it right to the point where teachers didn't even know they didn't sign it. Mm. And people were paying me $2 a hall, a hall pass. They were late for a class, whatever. They'd come and knock on the door. I'd sign them a hall pass and collect my money. Um, I had a term paper writing business. I could write a, I could bullshit better than anybody. And I knew what an A bullshit paper looked like and a B bullshit paper and a C bullshit paper. And I would charge 50, 75 or hundred. And I could call my grade. Like I was like Babe Ruth of term papers. <laughs> I would call my shot. I'm like, what do you want? They're like, I need a, I need a C. I'm like, you sure you don't want a B? They're like, I've never written a B in my life. I'm like, all right, we'll stay C. And I write them a C paper. Wow. And I never had anybody come back and say, you fucked me. You gave me an A when I called for a B. I knew just where that line to, on the grading system was. And then I had a small marijuana operation <laughs> and, and, and really enjoyed that. I loved smoking it. I, I enjoyed the way it made me feel. It made me feel like I was escaping because alcohol, there's so many, I smoked cigarettes since I was nine. So I couldn't, and I smoked Newports, which have an odd, like a lingering, the after effects of a Newport cigarette smells eerily like marijuana, mm. like a day later. So if I had smoked on my, my clothes, it wasn't a surprise, but if I had come up smell like alcohol, which happened one time, I got my ass beat. I'm like, well, I'm never doing that again. Mm, I'm just yeah. going to keep smoking pot. Yeah. Um, but I, I went through this whole discovery process of who am I never really knowing who I am, but I, I saw that I had all these different interests and capabilities, but I hadn't honed in on anything yet. Mm. And I was starting to really figure it out because I, I had gotten an appointment to the United States Coast Guard Academy. And I did that because I knew that that's what I should be doing. Like that was my, like if everybody wrote my script, that's what I should be doing. Hmm. But I go back to the fact that I was a smoke and mirrors kid and I didn't know how to study and I didn't know how to prepare and I didn't know how to stay organized. Hmm. And had I gone to the Coast Guard Academy, I would have been exposed quickly and severely. So my 18th birthday, I enlisted in the army and well, around my 18th birthday. And uh, I didn't know at the time, cause I did it sort of as a, an independence move. Hmm. Like I can do this cause I'm 18, but I didn't know that it negated my, my commitment to the Coast Guard Academy. Huh. Like an enlistment trumps, pun, no pun intended, any of the, the, anything else like that's gold. So I went off into the army, um, but a month before I left in the army, my brother was killed in a car accident. So everything that I just explained to you about how I was all over the place and I didn't have any focus or, or purpose, but I was learning about myself, but I hadn't really brought any of it into a productive place. That completely went to shit even more when my brother died. And I went into like a 13 year period of depression and, um, 
anger management issues mm. and un, unbelievable risk-taking choices um, all the while, you know, serving my country, yeah. doing very, very well on paper, just like I did life. It looked like I had my shit together. Mm. You know, I, I had all the things, all the box were being checked, getting awards and getting this and recognized for this and delivering a baby and being living, surviving a tornado and all the things that people are like, man, this dude's a fucking rock star. Mm. But behind the curtain, I was a shit show. And I met my wife who's fucking rock. I love her. She's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Mm. And I knew the minute I saw her, she was the one I was going to marry. And, and even knowing that she was the one I was going to marry, I couldn't love her. And I don't know, and I'm sure, and I know your story, you have been in, in that type of an environment mm-hmm. in your own heart when you can't, and you know you can. So it's not like you can't and, it, and you're oblivious to it. Like I, fit, I, I truly knew that I was, something was not right. Mm-hmm. But I had a strong enough brain and, and moral conviction to understand that this is right. Like she is the one. You may not figure it out yet, or you may not appreciate it yet, but she's definitely the one. And thankfully she said, yes, we got married and we got pregnant shortly after we got married and we had our daughter. And then it really hit home after we had her and it actually magnified my, my insecurity, my anger, my lack of trust, my, my inability to love having a baby in with a marriage because the marriage, we could figure it out because there was always sex, right? There was, there was something you could always go back to and it was like, let's have sex. Yeah. And then you felt connected. And in that moment, it was great. And you felt like she loved you and you loved her. And it was this replacement for what truly love is, mm-hmm. which is that emotional connection that doesn't require right. that, right? right? That my love for my wife is independent yes. Yes. of that. Yep. But I didn't have that. And then you throw in a baby who was premature and just colicky and never slept. And you couldn't have dinner without one walking around with her while the other one ate and swapping. And like, it was just chaos. And that magnified my life, the chaos in my life. And it was bad. I mean, I had a lot of really bad negative thoughts at the same time going, why the fuck can't you love your wife and kid? Yeah. Yep. And uh, that lasted until 2002. So my brother died in 1989 and that cycle of shit um, that I was living in lasted until 2002 when my son was born and I'd already become an air marshal by then. And, um, and I don't know how much you want me to continue on with this story, but I can go oh, into the right. meat potatoes of it. Yeah, no, it's great. So I didn't want another kid mm. because my fear was I was going to fuck it up just like I did the first time. Mm. I told my wife that I said, I don't know. I don't know if our marriage or, or my life can survive going through that process. Cause it's not my daughter's five things that were changing as far as her relationship with me. She wasn't an infant. She wasn't something I needed to care for every second of every day. She was doing stuff. We could talk like there was a little bit more connectivity there. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do that again. Hmm. And I prayed and I didn't pray a lot back then, but I knew that I was lost and something said, it's going to be okay. And I said to my wife, I said, I think we're going to be all right. Hmm. Let's do it. So we did. And she got pregnant um, right before I got the 
word I got hired by, by the air marshals. And so I'd left for training while she was pregnant in the middle of godforsaken nowhere outside of Roswell, New Mexico and left for four months and uh, came back two months before she was due. We had my son and I, I tell people this because when you go from living in a home where your mother is like the emotional God, right? <laughs> there isn't an emotion. My mom, we had the greatest, I'm back of my, like we lived in a house where you could say fuck. <laughs> that's great but as long as i wasn't saying fuck you to someone like mm. i could say i can't fucking believe it mom this happened today perfectly okay mm. if i say you know what fuck you mom boom <laughs> like a like a wooden spoon or a shoe something would be flying yeah but my mom and and she taught me this and she loved harder than she disciplined mm. and i always kept that balance like i'm a, I'm a disciplinarian i'm a I'm a, I'm a hard ass when it comes to my expectations for my family and my kids. Yeah. yeah. But I always keep that balance that I will always love harder than I discipline. And my mom taught me that, that there was never anything that I could do that would keep her from loving me that hard. Mm. As long as that knowledge is there with your family, like they know there's going to be disappointment. There's going to be letdowns. There's going to be things that you do that I'm not happy with, but I will never not love you harder than anything else on the planet. And I, I always maintain that, I think, somewhere in that recess of anger and hate and, and mistrust and, and being pissed at God during that 13-year period, in there was that memory that my mom had implanted in my heart. And when my son was born, it was weird. Like, when my daughter was born, it was a process. Like, pregnant, scream, rub back, push, baby, clean it up. I don't want to touch it till it's right. <laughs> like, like <laughs> Yeah. That thing don't look human. I don't want it yet. Like, yeah. yeah. With my son, it was like, holy fuck. Mm. And I saw him, and I and I remember just it like it was on, and I I'm gonna start crying. But when I saw him, it was like I saw a mirror, mm. and it looked familiar. And that was when, like, this little flicker it wasn't there yet but like i felt this like when you're priming an engine for the first yeah. time right that's yeah. been sitting there for 13 years never been started and you're trying to get it to start that's what that was mm. and over the course of the next couple of months i really started to have these moments where i could just feel a little bit of like relief mm. in my heart and then um one day my wife's like, I'm going to have you know, family and friends over to see the baby and you know, they want to bring stuff over and all that. So I'm like, yeah, whatever. And my grandmother came, my grandfather and a couple cousins, friends of my wife. And there's probably 20 people there. And typically in those situations, you have three kids and right. And you're not typically in the room when the onesies and binkies and, right. and blankets are being opened and there's usually something else happening in the kitchen with where there's beer or yeah. football or something. Yeah, that's right. So I was expecting to be there in the kitchen and I get told I got to be in the room to when they're opening gifts. So my grandmother, who's my stepfather's mother, my, by this time, both my maternal and paternal grandparents had passed. And uh, my nan is like the female version of me. Like she's a no nonsense, mm. like, if she tells you to do something, you have one choice. Yeah. 
that's yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and she hands me this box and she says, open it. And I, I open it. And inside is this yellow, white, blue play. It pays like a uh, paisley type stuff and two teddy bears. And I look and it's a quilt. Hmm. <laughs> I'm like, pull this bitch back up. <laughs> I said, man, I'm pretty sure this wasn't for me. She goes, she gives me that face. She goes, Matthew, Jonathan look at it. And I went, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Open it up. And I start to look at it. And then in my head, I'm going, what am I like the process? I'm going, I'm like, what the fuck am I looking at? What am I looking yeah, at? What am I like, I'm hiding to... my face from her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm going to look at this son of a bitch. So I figured it out. Right. <laughs> yeah. And the thing that, that hit me was there was on the one teddy bear, there was like a, like a work shirt embroidered Andy. Hmm. And it was brown teddy bear and gold lettering. And I remember my brother worked at a, um, it was like an old folks home kind of place, assisted living kind of place. And he was a janitor and, uh, you know, buff floors, change light bulbs, whatever. And he had a brown work shirt. And I remember the gold Andy stitching. Mm. And then all of a sudden, all the other colors and prints made sense. And it was like the blue paisley. My brother always had a blue bandana. He was like a snot rocket bandana, right? Like that was, my grandfather taught him, you always, every gentleman has a bandana mm. in case you don't have tissues, right? And I was like, that's so disgusting. Like, why would you keep blowing your nose into something that's got like hard, hard snot in it, right? Like right. I always thought that was odd, but my brother took that to heart and he always had a blue bandana. And then, you know, the brown was the brown work shirt and the yellow was, I remember my mom um, at Easter that year, she always matched us. Mm. so it'd always be like if he had a yellow shirt and a light blue vest i had a light blue shirt and yellow vest like it was always inversed right (laughs) and uh the yellow shirt was his easter shirt and the white was his t-shirts and because i always wore a t-shirt under every shirt and then i I realized i was holding my brother like Mm. everything that my brother had was here and my grandmother had said that she had kept his clothes because the week my brother died, my parents went, went away on vacation. And uh, we were there at, down on the beach in Delaware. And then I had come home. I had to work. My brother had to work. And my mom and stepdad stayed down for another week. So my brother was staying with my grandmother. And I was staying with friends. And she was doing his laundry um, the week he died. And for whatever reason, she kept his clothes um, in like a, a Ziploc airtight bag for 13 years and for whatever reason i don't know why she didn't give it to me when my daughter was born i don't know what the how she knew i was gonna have a son name him after my brother like i don't know what god did for my grandmother to make this happen but receiving a piece of my brother was the first thing i've ever had in 13 years that was his that i could touch and hold and smell and i swear to god i could smell him every time i touched it and uh, it was one of the most emotionally impactful moments of my life. So I excused myself and I went down to my office. I lived in a different house and I had an office downstairs in the basement. And it was probably 8.30 at night when I went down and I didn't come back up till 7.30 the next morning. Mm. And during that period of time, I cried and I typed. I cried and I typed. And I had this wave of emotions and memories 
come like flowing through me. And every time I had a memory, I would just write out the memory. Mm. And I was, I've always been a writer, but I never wrote like this. Like I, I could write a term paper or whatever, but I was never much of a writer um, just to write. There always had to be a reason. Yeah. Well, for whatever reason, God needed me to get this out. And that night I held on to that quilt and I wrote 26,000 words of memories um, in one night. And I came up the next morning and when the basement door opens up, it, there's a kitchen window and in, from that kitchen window was the east. So the sunrise would come through that window. And I remember when I opened the door, it was almost like blinding the light. Like I was just like taken aback by how bright the light was. And the way it came across was like on a diagonal from where the door opened up and I could see into my living room, but I could see every color in the rainbow mm. in the light and like the little flecks of dust. And I was like in a trance and I just kept remembering, like I've come up from this basement, I don't know how many times, and I've come down from, from upstairs and seen light come in the window, but I never paid attention to it. But this light was so ungodly bright and colorful that I remember thinking, why have I never seen that? Hmm. and literally when I got to looking at that light, I felt this, I don't know, it was like a release, like everything just sort of fell off me. Hmm. And I felt lighter and I felt great. And I, my wife came downstairs. She goes, did you spend the whole night down there? I said, I did. She goes, what did you do? I said, I wrote. She goes, what did you write? I said, memories about Andy. I couldn't stop. Like they just kept coming like a waves. And when people read my book, those 26,000 words are very prominent in that book because they were written at the most vulnerable, emotional, um, broken period ever. Like I let go, I grieved like full on hardcore grieving that night. And because I hadn't since he died, I never grieved and never, um, I never came to terms with the reality that he would never be there again. I was just so fucking angry and pissed off at God. And I, and I think I told you this after we recorded the podcast that, you know, when, when you relive your life and you get to write it out, it gives you perspective. Mm. And what I was angry about the most, there were two things. Number one, my purpose in life was to protect my brother. Like I always knew that that's just what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Mm. That wherever I was, he was, that was it. So I lost that. And I think I searched for that purpose by doing the service world right. as intentionally as I did and as passionately as I did and as risk takingly as I did, because I was trying to fulfill that missing purpose mm. by saving the world or saving, you know, there's always this missing, like I needed to, I felt like I always needed to be the one that went in first to a, uh, a hostage negotiation scene or whatever. Like I was always the first one in because I was the one that needed, like it was so burning inside of me that I needed to fill. It was like drugs. I needed to find a way to fill that again. And I never did. Like it just kept coming up empty. Um, so that was one of the things. And then the second thing was I thought my brother who had suffered so long, you know, he was 21 when he died and he never, never once had a kid call our house and say, can Andy come out and play or can he never got a birthday invitation or a, or a Valentine's card or like nothing ever happened to him 
that's it. I appreciate you, or I like you, or you're my friend mm-hmm. to anyone outside of me and my circle of people that took care of him. And he was just starting to figure it out. Like he had just gotten that job. He was working. He was driving a car, all the things they said he couldn't do. He did. And I'm like, he's finally starting to figure it out. And then he's taken from me. And I'm like, how fucking fair is that? Like, I did all this stupid shit I talked about earlier. Right. I faked it until I made it for 18 years. If anybody needed to go, it was me. Like, if God's picking between the two brothers, the Cain and the Abel, it's like, shit, you should have took me. Mm. And I was so angry that he didn't. And then um, when I wrote the book, it made me realize that my brother had another life for four years that I, I really never gave any context to because I wasn't part of it. So I never really thought about it. My brother, um, from the time he was, I would say 16 until 20, he worked in the summers at a camp, a Christian camp where he would do grass cutting and trim hedges and whatnot. And he would stay there, come home on the weekends, do laundry and stuff. But for the most part, he was there, but I didn't know these people. I didn't interact with any of them. I didn't know the other counselors or people that worked on the staff or any of the kids that came. But after I wrote the book and people started to realize that I wrote this book and, and it was email was about the best you could do as far as faster communications and sending a letter or a phone call. And I sent a couple emails out saying, Hey, I wrote this book and I sent one to the camp where my brother worked and said, I'd love to come and talk. Um, to the staff and if anybody knew Andy it'd be great to you know just catch up with them and I in the meantime they built a gymnasium in my brother's name there at the camp and you know that was amazing but even then I didn't recognize what that meant like what does building a fucking gymnasium and build naming it after another human being like how big is that like it didn't I thought it was awesome but I didn't really appreciate the why like why would somebody do that until I wrote this book and people would come to me at book signings. And when I was at the camp on different events, like your brother was the most important person in my life at that time. Like I was a camper and he, every time that I came to camp every summer for four years, I would always look out for your brother and he would always have a smile and thumbs up. Mm. Um, You know, that kind of the stories, one woman named her son after him. I mean, Mm. when you think about, how someone who suffered and never had a friend never had a birthday party literally not one where someone who wasn't related to him didn't come you know that was a, someone that wasn't there that had to be there would come and you think about that and you you feel sorry for him And then you find out he had a completely different life that for four years you knew nothing about. And he touched so many lives and impacted so many people and had so many friends. And I realized after 13 years of being fucking pissed off that my brother never had a chance to live that I realized he lived more than anybody. And the number of lives he impacted is more than I could ever fathom impacting. And still to this day, this book sells and somebody else, I never even knew, are you Andy Kubler's brother? And I'm like, I never. And (laughs) my brother, (sighs) 
my brother would carry my a picture of me. And you know, like when you're trying to pick up a girl, you have a line. When my brother would meet somebody new, he would lead with, do you want to see a picture of my brother? thought that a long time. You know, Thanks, dude. No, man, thank you. And, you know, um, my one of my closest friends is sister's Downs. And, um, and he was telling me that he my buddy's dad, who's in his 60s, says, you know, I'm perfectly fine believing Jesus was Downs. You know, he had, a, he had no form that people looked upon. No one thought he was attractive. You know, writes in Isaiah 53 what he looked like and was not nothing special to look upon. And I think, man, Jesus has been amongst us in the form of all these people that we discard. Who, who that's, that's love. And it's unconditional. That's incredible. So yeah. Incredible. That was my brother. And uh, I'm looking at his picture now. And uh, after I let that go, mm. that anger, my, my life changed. And while I was successful on paper, I wasn't happy and I wasn't, um, I had no joy. And I started to feel those things and I was able to feel that from my wife and my daughter and my son and other people and share that and, and sharing my brother's story um, was my therapy and and it was, um, it was something others could hold on to when they were suffering with something traumatic. Mm. Didn't have to be the same story, but if they could see how I was able to overcome it and how I was able to turn it into a positive and um, share it openly, um, then maybe that, that would give them some hope. Mm dealing with their problems or their their trauma and and it's become that and it's turned into so many different um it's taken so many different forms you know i thought i was just going to write a book and share his, his story and then i people asked me to speak and then i became a speaker and then 
you know, people wanted me to change who I was as a speaker and, and they wanted me to change the book. And they're like, we could take this book and turn it into a number one bestseller if we would just change this or add that or remove this. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck all that. Yeah. I don't want any of that. I want this to be the single greatest legacy I've ever created mm. in its current form permanently. This will never be altered. Right. And it could have saved my life. Why would I change that? Solomon wrote that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And Andy chose a good name. Yeah. And I was just thinking while you're talking about the building, the gym, um, the three deaths in Mexico, they talk about the three deaths. The first death is when a child first learns that they will die. The second death is when the body physically dies. And the third death is when the last time your name is ever spoken. I've heard that. Powerful. And your brother's going to outlive forever. Yeah, he's going to live forever. And it's funny when he died and, and, you know, the beautiful part about memories are that they're there when you need them, mm-hmm. right? I remember when when my brother died, I I tried to kill myself by taking a bottle of aspirin of all things. Um, The thing that gave me two ulcers, (laughs) I decided I'm going to take the whole goddamn bottle. And um, anyways, I I ended up being on some, some medicine to sort of calm me down. And at the funeral, I remember I was in a kind of a haze. My stepfather, it was his church and, you know, he as much as my stepdad and I sometimes butt heads and we butt headed, butted heads over the years, no one should ever have to bury their own son Mm. and then preside over the service. Mm. I can't imagine the courage it took to do that. Mm. Um, But I remember sitting in the crowd, looking around angry in a haze and the church was packed and it's a big church. It probably holds 1500 people. Wow. Um, and the line was outside. Hmm. People couldn't come in. There was a thousand people at least at my brother's funeral. And I just remember, <laughs> and it's just amazing how when you're, when you're blocked off, when you can't process, when you're just so angry and you can't see what's right in front of you and that have so many transition translations to today but when you can't see what's right in front of you and and process it i couldn't process the number of people that were there because the only thing i could think of was who the fuck are all these people Mm. and why are they here for my brother's funeral like who did how did they know him i don't know who you are if you don't know i don't know who you are you sure shit don't know my brother like in my head i was so small-minded into my brother's life in my access to his life and understanding of his life. All I knew is that I was his keeper and he needed me. And that was the small little world we lived in. And I didn't know who he was. And it pissed me. I'm not gonna, when I realized how important my brother's life was to many other people, my first reaction was fuck motherfucker. I didn't know that like why wasn't I given that brother like why wasn't I exposed to the the Andy that was just in his own element and 
calm and relaxed and happy and joyful and not stuttering as much and like all those things. Like, why the fuck wasn't I privy to that guy? But then I thought, thank God he was that guy. Like, thank God someone, he got to be that person and impact those lives. And the more I thought about it, the more he was that guy. I just didn't look at him that way. Hmm. He was always in need to me. Hmm. And I don't know if that was my own ego and my own hubris. I don't, I don't know what caused that. I was a kid. but I'm so thankful that that was revealed to me so that I could grow from that and, and identify it if it happens again in me or in my family or like my expectations in life aren't so, so small minded anymore that my view of a person of who they appear to be, I've learned that I have to look deeper Mm. and expect that there's more layers and that what you're showing isn't necessarily the full context of who you are and what you have to offer. Mm. And it's made relationships. And I'm not necessarily a people person. Being a cop for as long as I have, you know, solving problems is getting old. Um, And I feel like sometimes that's all I'm asked to do is fix things and not experience or share or be happy. You know, there are those rare moments like delivering a baby in the front seat of a Toyota on a cold December morning in 2012. Mm. Those are great moments. <laughs> but there's 500 negative ones. Right, right. And so sometimes it's tough to see those joyful moments and hold on to them in order to um, keep everything in context. Mm. But I never, I've learned to never simply just accept. And I think that's why we are who we are as far as true seekers, Right. that the first layer is never the one I'm looking at. I'm looking at for the hundredth layer because my brother was so deep of a human and that I missed out on identifying that during the times that we had together, mm. that now in his death, I can, I can be honest with myself that I didn't see those things and and have my moments of sadness because I didn't, but then also celebrate the joy of, of the fact that he did have all those layers. It is. Um, you know, speaking to you, but also everyone listening, like it is okay to be sad it is okay to grieve there's so many people that have yet to grieve and just it's fucking sad fucking sad (laughs) you know when uh i can't hear that song um maybe uh little big town i don't even know i can see the two guys and the two gals but they sing. i wish he was a better man i fucking i can't listen to that song right i cannot listen to it I, like the one verse and i just fucking just and it's okay and i've been okay like learned it's okay to just be sad it's okay to grieve because i think then that's where we get gratitude is maybe, maybe we just aren't grateful because we haven't allowed that 
to feel the bottom so that we know where the bottom is to like, well, okay, I'm not at the bottom anymore. I'm here, you know, wherever we are. Yeah. I'm thankful you share your story. I'm thankful that you honor his legacy through sharing your sadness. And I, I think, and I, I just had this conversation, a friend of mine, my wife's best friend lost her father mm. Christmas Eve. And she's like a sister to me and her kids are my nieces and nephews and we're the godparents to almost all of them. And um, you know, trying to explain to her and she's never had trauma. Mm. Like she's had a grandfather die, but he was 99 or whatever. Like there's, yeah. there's never been this like kick in the face moment. Yeah. And I told my kids, my own kids, I'm like, you, you should feel blessed mm. that my daughter's going to be 23 and my son's 18 and they've suffered trauma. And I said, absent, and you, you said it right until you know where the bottom is, yeah. you keep thinking you're there right. <laughs> at some point in time in your life. You're always like, this is the worst. I'm never going to make it through this. Yeah. Oh my God, my boyfriend broke up with me, whatever. Right. Yep. Yep. And and I firmly believe had it not been, and I told you this the other day, um, I am thankful that my brother died mm. because I wouldn't be me and have the opportunities that I have to help others and to share his story and to grow and build my family in a way that is going to help the world through each one of their individual contacts as they grow without his death. And what I, what I traded tomorrow yeah. for another hour. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean I'm not thankful. Right. That, that that's an and not a, or right. Yeah. And, yeah. And having that, you know, it's 31 years since my brother died. Mm. July I'll be 32. And the fact that I can sit here and look at his picture and cry isn't is no longer um something i'm afraid of mm, yeah it's what i lean into yeah and and this is where i get like, getting chills right now like what uh andy was permission for others yeah you sharing your story with of Andy and your memories and, and getting choked up is giving permission to others. Yeah. I really believe that this whole existence that we're here to just give the next person permission to be, just be, you know, I grew up, it was just a chaotic, insane mess, but a controlled psyop to the outside world but i had a disdain for everyone that thought they were cool because they didn't know what i was going through and they all you know and and i've since learned that no one's cool <laughs> no one's cool i've been award-winning this and that you did so who cares like it doesn't mean a thing it's like are we loving are we creating space for other people to feel safe? Like instead of this bravado and it's like, I, I just was with some guys this weekend at a men's retreat and like, there's no, there's always a tougher, smarter, stronger, 
the richer, whatever. There's always more of that. You know who wins the game? Those that can go lowest and be the bottom to contain and hold that space for people and say, it's okay to cry. It's okay to be strong and sensitive. It's okay to be bold and quiet. It's okay, whatever it is. It's this and world that we have had robbed from us, I think, for so long because it's either you're this or that. You either, you know, you're strong or you're weak. You can be strong and weak. <laughs> it's just choosing when, you know, what is weakness, I guess. But I'm just saying that it's beautiful for you to share the story and, and share vulnerability. It's a, it, vulnerability is strength. I agree. I, I think we live in a world, you know, having done the profession I've done for so long and seeing how, um, the behind the curtains of a lot of different families um, and just seeing the world evolve since, you know, I've been a cop since 1993 and just understanding how um, labels and our, how our society wants everyone to be in a box. Mm. And I, you know, I, I wrote a couple programs for, you know, mentorship and anti-bullying stuff in, in the past and, I've pitched them to schools, but what I end up doing is offending everybody that I go that that works within this education system because they're participating in a hoax. And I'm like, you tell me that you're an inclusive society in school, but the minute a kid comes in, they got to pick a box. Yeah, that's right. You've always got, are you in the college prep box? Are you in the special education box? Are you in the band box? Are you in the sports box? Are you in the, the key club, Spanish club, whatever box it is, it might be inclusive under the same named school right but once you enter the school you get put into a box you have to pick a box and those that pick no box are the ones that end up you know chastised and and have no no home right and i i tried to explain that to the school districts i'm like listen we have to stop the boxing Hmm. we have to create if we're going to if, if we're going to accept the fact there's going to be different groups we've got to create a unifier for those groups Hmm. so that they're all connected at some point in time. So it can't all be you or right. There's got to be an and. Yes. Right. right? Yes. And and the program that I wrote was the and. And I said, if you're not willing to, to accept the fact that what we've been doing is creating a world full of labelers, box makers Hmm. who have to create that in order to find their semblance of order and their semblance of home and their semblance of, of, of comfort, then we need to, we need to change that. And nobody wanted to buy that. Nobody. Hmm. I got, I got told no by every school district I went to because it disrupted. And it was an outsider who pointed out their ward, right. Yeah. And came up with the solution. Right. And, and that's the, you know, I, I learned early on how hard it is to push rocks uphill. Mm-hmm. Right. Brother, I am, I am so thankful. We, we just, we met on, on, uh, one twenty. Yeah. Like the inauguration day. And here we are uh, crying on your goddamn show. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I do. I love it. And, and, you know, obviously we're talking about the audience, you know, size of this podcast and, you know, look, I mean, people are hearing this in 
Spain, in Germany, in Saudi Arabia, Mexico, and Sweden. Like people are hearing this story all around the world. And this is a human story. This is not a, an American story. This is not a, a white male. So this is human story. And it's the more stories like this that get shared, the more people feel safe enough, especially when they're strong men. This is why I believe that when men heal, the world heals because who better to take the mask off? It's like to go to the alpha males, say, take your mask off and be vulnerable and talk yeah. about. And I told the guys this weekend, I said, if you can't cry, that's an indication that you are not healed. Healed, a healed person actually is able to feel and not be blocked off. So crying is a form of healing and an indication of healed process. It's the, those that can't cry, those that are tough and like, oh, I've been crying fucking years. Like, wow, cool, man. Your soul must be shriveled and dry. <laughs> like, I'm not going, I'm not going to you for any advice, you know, like, um, so it's, it, it's really beautiful. And, and I'm thankful you came on and I just, I just love you. And I, I'd give you the biggest hug. I'm six, three. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little over that 250 mark this morning. I was like, okay, I got to lose some weight. I got to drop it. And, uh, but I'd give you a huge hug, brother. And just thank you. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. It's uh, what I've found about podcasting. When anybody asks me about why a podcast and why haven't you monetized your show or whatever the case might be, it's because I, I, I truly have no passion for anything other than having great conversations. Yes. And if it turns into anything other than that, it becomes something I'm not passionate about and I'm not going to do it with any level of, of consistency or, or passion. And, right. and I love the fact that we are coming at it from the same place. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, who we are as men and fathers and husbands and um, sons and friends is, is a, microcosm of how we are able to intercommunicate with one another mm-hmm. and and share and um uplift and and i think that's what podcasting has done for me it's allowed me to have those connections yeah with people that i typically may not right right and share their story just like you shared mine today in a way that isn't and, and we've talked about this before that, you know, there's, I've been a guest on a hundred and some podcasts and we're all different and everybody's got their own style, but the ones that I like the best are the ones when we can just sit and talk. And if I'm on a roll or you're on a roll and you just let that, and you feel it's truly worthwhile of it just being let go and just let it go. Yeah. Those are the best kinds of shows because someone can connect. Yes. And rather than being, I got to get these 10 questions out. Right. For right. the end of the show. Right. Um, and I, I love the fact that this is the type of show you have and, um, it's, uh, it's a blessing to be able to, to share time with you. And I'm, Thanks, I'm really man. thankful that you allowed me to be on. Same, man. Thank you. That is a blessing to me too. I get chills. It's funny. Most of the conversations I've ever had with anyone, it's the first time I hit record. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> so people are like, Hey, didn't know we were going to go there. I'm like, I didn't either, but that's the beautiful thing. I really believe like God, you know, we're two or more gathered and Jesus said, we're two or more gathered in my name, which Yeshua meaning salvation, which means in love. So we're two or more gathered in love. Their love is, and there people can like connect with that. And it's like, there's no distance. This is what I think podcasting. I mean, we're 3000 miles apart, you know, physically, but we're right next to each other 
digitally but energetically you're right here with me like oh, yeah. you're actually right i'm feeling you talking the story like yeah i could hug you right now and just give you a hug this is i think what the truth is of what we've always been able to access what we will be able to step into is we impact energetically every person one way or another we're either creating a void in them or we're filling a void right. in them and um it's beautiful. And I do believe this, like I was telling, I, I went to the dentist this morning and, and, uh, and I was <laughs> red pilling the, <laughs> I was red pilling the woman working on my teeth. And I said, I do believe we're entering a more beautiful world. I said, it's just slowly people are coming to this place. Like men, I believe in not even categories, men, all humans, but alpha males will be the most sensitive uh, it's like the elders you go back like think of the ancient times or like movie avatar they go to the elder of the tribe or whatever elder you know I watched Last of the Mohicans right. and uh, they go to the elder and the elder says something completely different than what um, the one guy wanted the the, the not anyway whatever he was uh, tribe wise but that's what we're stepping into again. And we haven't had that for a very long time where you and I are going to be sitting someday and people are like, man, what do you think? Like, well, how's your heart? Right. How's your soul? When's the last time you fed your soul? Don't tell me about, let's not worry about what you're going to do first is how are you being? Do you need a hug? <laughs> you know, do you need to let it rip? You need to let it rip. And um, anyway, brother, it's just fun. And thank you. I think it's great because, and not to extend the show any longer, but great. when when people meet us, like, and we were talking earlier on that people have an assumption of who you are. Why do I ask on my podcast, who is Lucas Mack? Yeah. It's because who I think Lucas Mack is might be completely different than who you think it, you are, yeah. right? So yeah. That's why I asked that question. And people look at me and there's, there's the group of people that only know me as the author who wrote a really sentimental, emotional book and can cry on stage telling that story. And then there's people that know me as the, the guy that was on the SWAT team and, would, you know, been in shootings and, you know, has no problem throwing down with somebody. Yeah. And then there's the guy that, that people see that is mentoring kids. And like, there's, but nobody looks at me in my package, like the whole package of right. Makutu, right. which is like so simplistically complex like there's no there's no moving parts to me right. they're all very they're there you just have to look at them like i'm yeah. not there's no mystery behind who i am right i'm very right. open about who i am but it's funny how when when people look at you they see the person that they connect with yeah not necessarily who you are as a person and i think what we're entering into is that awareness level where people are actually opening their eyes and their hearts to be able to see and feel at the same time because yeah. typically the head will shut down the heart or the heart will, will blind what you're seeing. Right. Um, one, one is overpowering the other, but I think we're going to a space where there's going to be this symbiotic relationship between the two. It's awesome. <laughs> I'm excited about it. Um, so how can people follow you for, you have an amazing podcast two uh, two dates in a dash, uh, which I was honored to be on, but yeah, just please brother share where we can follow you and support you. Easiest way I got kicked off social media for politics. <laughs> so right now I'm only on LinkedIn and Instagram um, on, under Matt Kubler, but um, someday maybe I'll be back on Facebook. But um, 
and YouTube. I have my YouTube page, Matt Kubler, but the easiest way to get a hold of me and to find anything out about me is mattkubler.com. Okay. And uh, your book's on Amazon or you can buy it? It's on it. Amazon. You can order it from the website. You can order it on Amazon directly. Okay. Um, comes in Kindle, softback, and hardback. And uh, I did make the top 100 after 14 years, which is a total scam, but top 100 in the uh, books of individuals with disabilities. Wow. Um, top 100. Congratulations. So, Congratulations. After 14. Brother. Amazing. Well, thank you, brother. I love you, man. I can't wait to talk. I can't wait to meet in person. That's going to be an epic day. <laughs> Dude, we got to, we got to, I got to come out Aaron. and Aaron got to get together. Yes. Yes. It's good. Thanks brother. Well, I hope you all enjoyed again, go to mattkubler.com. I'll put that link in the show notes and look at his site. His site summarizes who he is a very diverse and wide array individual who has a beautiful heart and a beautiful soul and is is standing for the betterment of all. And I'm excited that um, he got to share his story here and Andy's story as well. So blessings to you all. Again, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining this journey of becoming a golden rule revolutionary, making a more positive impact in the world to receive the love of God so that we can love others be the permission for others to heal, be the permission for others to take their masks off and become vulnerable and receive the love that we all have sought our entire lives. It's available now. I bless you all. Thank you for watching. I'm Lucas Mack. This is the Golden Rule Revolution, and I'll talk to you on the next episode. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for listening. For support in your journey, go to my website, lucasmack.com.